the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Okay, um, so thanks very much guys for, for joining the Farm Advisory Service this afternoon. Um, conscious of the fact that there are four of us on this podcast, do each of you want to just give an introduction to, to what it is you do within the, the Venison Advisory Service? Yes, shall I start there? I am Dick Playfair. I am one of the directors of the Venison Advisory Service, um, but I also do a lot of other deer work for the Association of Deer Management Groups and for the Scottish Venison Association. Okay. Um, I'm John Fletcher. Um, I, I'm um, a, a vet and I've been farming deer for very many decades and we used to run our own venison business too. Um, I've been a director of um, Venison Advisory Services since it was set up and uh, I try and help out on veterinary matters and on some of the consultancy work and uh, generally we all muck in and it's quite an informal thing but we have good results I think. Uh, my name is Alan Sneddon. I'm a director of the Venison Advisory Service. Um, I've been involved in deer farm management for um, over 30 years, probably 35 years now, both in the UK um, and New Zealand. So, yes, I'm, I'm involved more on in the practical side of things, um, doing farm visits along with John. And then I also do follow-up work as in hands-on in, um, tuition or training and, um, yeah, sort of, Making overseeing the farm uh, management for the first year if the clients want that. So yeah, that's what I do. Fantastic, um, and obviously as part of this ongoing series, Thrill of the Hill, uh, we like to get um, a range of speakers on to discuss the important topics in the the farmed upland environment. So Alan, can you give the listeners a bit of a, a brief kind of breakdown of what the Venison Advisory Service does? Yeah, well, as we said in the introduction, we set this up in 2012. Actually, it was Dick that approached myself and John. Um, we felt there was a need for a specialist consultancy uh, for deer, deer farming. Um, there was an interest we could see developing in a renewed interest in the deer farming sector. And we felt as a group, we could possibly help people to set up deer farms um, with our professional and uh, knowledge. Um, what, what we did in 2015-2016 was actually run two deer farm and park demonstration projects. Um, well, two, sorry, we had the deer farm park and demo project, which was a great success in its first year in 2015. It was an on-farm um, forum where we had over uh, 500 uh, delegates over two years came to the, the demo days and we covered all aspects of farm management um, and we give people an insight into actual deer farming itself. Uh, we also provide scoping studies, which effectively are a blueprint for anyone looking at deer farm as an option. Um, the, the cover the financial aspects of it, the actual practical planning of a deer farm. And um, really, they, they've been a great asset to new entrants who are looking for funding. Um, it certainly helped with the panel scoring and also for people looking for lending for deer farms. Also to date, I was just checking back of, of a list of clients. We've probably set up over the past few years, 20 new deer farm uh, projects in Scotland. So in terms um, of the, the, the deer industry, the venison industry within Scotland, what is the outlook like right now? Obviously, we're, we're dealing with COVID um, and a lot of industries across Scotland are having to adapt and, and uh, to innovate. But what's the general feel out there for, for people who are farming deer currently? Um, if I take that one on, I think we can we know that actually the outlook for venison is very positive. Um what we have been able to do this year through some Scottish government funding is actually have some in-depth market research done, really for the first time through Kantar. And this has allowed us to know, A, a lot more about the market and who is buying venison, where they're based, um, what sort of things they're looking for. 
but also start to show us some trends coming through. So the first Kantar um, piece of research was commissioned for the financial of the year to February 2020. And that actually showed an increase in terms of volume. I should say this is only through the retail and grocery sector, um, but an increase in terms of volume in the UK of some 20% and an increase in terms of value of around 12%. So that really is a very positive message and I think shows that venison in that particular sector um, is probably growing faster than any other of the red meats. Uh, subsequently, we've had another report, short report back from Kantar, uh, which showed 12 months to September of this year. And surprisingly, despite COVID, um, we have seen a further rise in volume of 10%, again, through retail and grocery outlets across the UK, and a rise in value of 7%. So venison is continuing to perform well. Um, the reason for the drop in value is because a lot of the product coming from processors is actually being discounted in order to keep um, that venison on the shelves. So in terms, of, in terms of retail and grocery, very positive picture, sales are increasing, and there's a really good story to tell. In terms of what is happening in the hospitality, restaurant, catering, food service sector, I mean, venison has taken a huge hit. And this is in line, I think, with everyone else in the food business in Scotland. Um, the closure of restaurants and pubs, such like, I mean, has has really cut the legs from under a lot of the supply from the wild side, particularly going into that channel of trade. And when you consider, too, that the event sector has been shut down since March, and with, when I think in terms of events, I guess I'm thinking of things like weddings right through to things like the open golf. I mean, take one wedding in a big hotel and you'll see 400 fillets being put on the table. That just isn't happening at all. So there are major concerns running through the wild sector in terms of how that market has really, as I say, had the legs cut from under it. And we're looking at measures which can really help to support that. There have been some positives, and what has happened out of that change in market conditions is that people have had to think slightly differently and faster than they might have done in the past. And we have seen a reversion to um, more online sales. And I mean, five, 10 years ago, when we originally were looking at pulling the Scottish Venison Association website together, Online seemed quite healthy and then for some reason died back. But clearly, online now is very much something that has come to the fore. There's a lot more discussion about local sales. Again, thinking in terms of, of wild product, in terms of uh, local processing and a very short supply chain, either selling direct to the public through, for instance, farm shop or estate shop or selling to the local butcher. Um, and really that, that move, which is very healthy in terms of food miles and the like, has been prompted by this shutdown of the events and hospitality sector. So on the one side, as I say, the, the retail and grocery side is looking good. That is predominantly where a lot of the farmed product is going. Um, on the wild side, uh, where much of the, um, or, or I should say the events market is being serviced, then clearly we are in it um, with the rest of the Scottish food sector, um, struggling with those difficulties that have arisen from all those closures um, and lockdowns. Alan, were you looking to, to come in on this topic? Um, I think Dick's actually covered it pretty well there. Um I mean, I can only maybe add that the, yeah, no, I don't think there is much I can add to that. Do you think, Dick? Uh, no, I, I mean, I would doubt it. I think, you, you know, we do, as I say, we've got real positives on one side. We have a real positive in terms of venison, its popularity. But mm -hmm. what we've had is the legs cut from under a significant part of the market, um, which is causing 
the wild side in particular issues. Um, but, you know, once we're through COVID, I'm sure we will see that bounce back. Yeah, I, I could say a wee bit about exports, um, which I should have done. Exports, too, we know have been hit hard. I mean, the, the, the factor really which has come into play on exports has been Brexit. And there's a hell of a lot of uncertainty right now, as there is right across the red meat sector, as to what will happen with our exports um, as of January next year. The, the, the factor which is, which is really getting to people, I think, is that planning is just so difficult. And I'm sure listeners will have heard this from other people. I mean, until we actually know the rules, it's impossible to know quite what one can, do, one can expect or what measures can be taken um, for those who want to export product into Europe or further afield. And I should say that there is a significant market in Europe for roe deer, for roe venison, um, and also a healthy market, or there has been a healthy market for late rutted stag venison, which you know has there's an appetite for that in Europe, and it's really not something that the the British taste uh, or British palate um, will take to. So. It, it really needs to be a situation where we want that to, to, to go into Europe. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Brexit is, is causing its difficulties too. And I think the writing on the wall is, that, is, is very faint. We really don't know what is it, the score is going to be. Um, and crucially, deal or no deal seems to be the, the major factor. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. There's been a lot of discussion in the past few years about the impact of deer, um, particularly on the uplands. Um, and a lot of special interest groups have taken very strong stances as to whether or not there are too many deer or whether or not we should be um, shooting more. Does the Venison Advisory Service um, have a, a stance on this issue? If I could say something very briefly here, and then maybe John or Alan would also have a view. I mean, I know Alan is involved with one of the deer management groups in, in Perthshire. So, um, yeah, there is there is a strong lobby that would like to see deer populations reduced. And I use the word populations very guardedly, actually, because we shouldn't be thinking in terms of numbers of deer in the uplands at all. We should be thinking in terms of what impacts those deer are causing, whether that be environmental impacts or um, in terms of impacts on populations. And I'm thinking there of things like road traffic accidents and, and accident hotspots, or in terms of um, carbon and, and a number of other factors. So impacts are the important issue rather than deer populations themselves. And there is a very strong lobby that would like to say that Scotland has too many deer. Um, we've actually seen coming through both the latest SNH and now Nature Scott report on deer management, which came out towards the end of last year, and the Deer Working Group report. Um, which the Scottish government has has yet to respond on, I should add, but that a figure of around ten per square kilometre is seen as being, um, if you like, a target that upland deer management should adhere to. Now, in many places, and the Hutton has been undertaking work on this for the last twenty years. Um, deer numbers are actually below that ten per square kilometre figure. They're in excess of it, certainly in some places, but overall, I think the balance is pretty fair. And over 20 years, as the Hutton work shows, um, deer numbers have been brought under control and are now decreasing. So um, in terms of impacts, we, I, I think we're in a much better place than we were. I think that there are some overambitious figures that get bandied around of two per square kilometre or five per square kilometre. And we have to remember that um, the deer in Scotland's uplands form an essential part of Scotland's tourism business and are a valuable asset for the tourism economy. 
And on the wildlife watching side, people want to come to Scotland. And if they go into the uplands, they want to see deer. So let's not get ourselves in a situation where we actually start to pillory this animal, um, which is A, a very valuable source of protein, B, um, a really important asset for our tourism economy. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I think we are currently in a good place and that situation will improve. Um, but we we really should not be accepting that the uplands are overrun um, to any extent at all. Um, I I don't know if um, if this is a relevant subject, but it does seem to me that the lobby groups against deer in the hills are based largely around the notion that it shooting them is elitist, that the um, properties in the highlands of Scotland belong to a small number of people, and there's a very strong socialist agenda, I suppose, that would like to see deer numbers massively decreased in such a way as to um, make that sporting unsustainable. Um, And Going along with that, there is also a very strong feeling that deer prevent regeneration of trees, that trees are very good for the carbon, um, for for climate change and for um, for sequestering carbon. Um, And yet, in fact, um, we've failed to take into account very large numbers of sheep. Sheep numbers have halved in the last few years on the hills um, and deer numbers, as Dick has said, are declining. So we are reaching a point where regeneration of woodlands is likely to take place anyway. Um, And then further complicating things is the fact that throughout Scotland, almost everywhere, planting of trees is going to take place on peatlands and destruction of the peat means that those new forests may actually have a negative impact on carbon sequestration. So it is a very complex and highly politicised area. Um, and I don't think it's fair to say that... Ven- I think it is fair to say that um, Venison Advisory Services doesn't really want to get involved in that or, or have a policy on any of that. We would just like to apply common sense and realism. Ideal. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Uh, <laughs> we could all do with a bit more common sense right now. Both of you mentioned um, carbon there where do you see the 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 deer industry um in terms of their climate change commitments and and what role do they have to play in the scotland's fight against climate change um well they are of course deer are of course ruminants and they don't have a very significantly different um, methane production level from other ruminants um Deer are marginally less efficient at food conversion ratios, so they do tend to show a very slightly increased level of um, methane production. But um, it, that it, that is um, a lot of research has been done on this, and I don't think um, it's really yet reached the level of putting animals in climate um, containers to to assess some um, actual methane production from the baseline. There was work done um, by um, Holly Riddle, I think, through SRUC some time ago, but she drew a lot of her figures from sheep. Um, There's also been work done from Edinburgh University demonstrating that if you increase the levels of um, ericaceous material in the diet, then you reduce methane levels and deer, um, that, that is true of red deer, certainly. And, of course, on the hills, the wild red deer are um, ericaceous materials, uh, the heathers and so forth, um, form an important part of their diet. So that will make a difference. But in in the broader scheme of things, looking at the farm deer, then um, we farm deer really use a low level of inputs. So we're looking at animals that are um, almost entirely pasture-fed and forage crop-fed. And we're moving further in that direction, as I'm sure Alan could um, could explain. Um, and that in itself will have a benefit because um, those 
um, the energy inputs required are less than they would be for beef and lamb, I would expect. So at the moment, I think it's fair to say that deer are not significantly different from other ruminant uh, meat producing systems. Um, and uh, I think that's that's about all, all I can say really um, on the subject. So, some work's been done in New Zealand and that broadly substantiates the work that's been done in Edinburgh. Good. Good. And I was just going to come to, to, to Alan there. Alan, in, in terms of the characteristics of deer as farmed animals, how do they compare to, to cattle and, and to sheep? Yeah, that's, that's a good question, Alex. Um, well, I would describe farm deer as being uh, not domesticated, but fence trained and humanized in that they're they're brought up in a an environment behind a fence, so they're used to being contained, but they also still retain their kind of flight response, if you like, and that actually makes them really interesting and rewarding animals to work with. I think with deer, um, a deer herd sort of management is very similar in certain certain ways to um, a suckler cow herd, in that they they are they are spring calving. They normally have one calf um, around about May June time. And you're looking at probably a, a herd life of 14 years for an adult hind. Um, a stag will, will rut up to 40 hinds, probably more than that if um, he's allowed. And um, a stag would have a breeding life of maybe 10 years. Uh, they are, obviously, you need to learn about the animal. They're different. They, they, they tend to... Um, you know, they can become very tame very quickly, so you can lead them with a bag. You can also push them. We have clients that actually use dogs on them very successfully. So they are similar but different. I think um, they, they do command a bit of respect, and the handling facilities have to be uh, 100%. They have to be properly maintained, and they have to be solid once you're actually in with them. Um, the main difference, I suppose, is is the, the in the handling facilities and the, the fencing and whatever. Just to say that from the veterinary viewpoint, um, deer have a big advantage over cattle and sheep in that we don't have any of the metabolic diseases that cattle and sheep have developed over the millennia that they've been domesticated. So um, we, we don't see... Um, Oh, milk fever, ketosis, um, twin lamb disease. We don't, we don't see any of those, or magnesium deficiency, um, mastitis, diseases which we have bred into cattle and sheep in order to improve their productivity. Um, in deer, we have a clean slate so far, and that has a big advantage in that antibiotics and drugs that we use in deer are absolutely minimal. In fact, I think we could work to a system where we won't use any drugs at all in deer. Um, it, that is a very encouraging thing at a time when we're all very worried about antibiotic resistance. Yeah, I think you're right, John. I think the, the um, I maybe mentioned low labour, but the labour requirement for farm deer is minimal compared to cattle or sheep. Um, but the, the key thing is to get the best out of them, um, yeah, there has to be a lot of attention to detail. And we're finding that some of the, the new farms coming on board are, you know, in that top few percent of, of stock people. And um, they really are enjoying working with deer. You mentioned um, high attention to, to detail there, Alan. In terms of deer as an enterprise, can they be part of a mixed farming unit? Or do you find that they tend to be a specialist enterprise on their own? Uh, historically, they've been more of a specialist enterprise, but over the past um, few years, sort of the past three to four years, we've found that farmers coming into deer are forward-thinking, um, quite large operators that have already got elements of sheep, beef, perhaps some arable on their farms, and are looking at an alternative to particularly sheep. Um, they're finding themselves looking forward and thinking maybe we're just a bit too reliant on our sheep enterprise. So the deer, um, they come in to complement that, if you like. Because of the low labour requirement, um, they can be run without taking on any extra staff um, in some some cases. And um, you can actually, the, the timings of the deer work, your busy days in the yards and whatever, um, can be worked around your other busy times of the year. So it's not a great drain on resources. Good, good. And um, how do 
what, what, what is the temperament like of, of farmed deer in comparison to, to, to wild deer in your experience? Yeah, I mean, farm deer, as I said before, are generally fence trained um, and humanized. By humanized, I mean they're they used to people. Um, in most cases, they may have been housed for the first winter and, and fed inside. So that really gives them close contact, which makes them um, less flighty than, say, wild deer would be. I mean, I've, I've worked with deer which have been um, live captured. And if, if they're brought into a fenced environment, um, which they're familiar with, uh, then they can actually settle down very quickly within that environment. Um, but they would not be initially as tame as, um, you know, farm deer that have been brought in there. Um, going back to integrating into a, a mixed enterprise, deer will, they're not as close grazers as um, sheep or cattle. So they can be, you can run cattle or you can run sheep behind deer or in front of deer. Um, what we don't encourage is to have um, breeding sheep as in lambing ewes in with or adjacent to your deer because of um, MCF. And maybe John could speak a little bit about MCF. Um, yes, MCF is malignant catarrhal fever. It's an interesting disease because it's carried by, we think, all sheep um, subclinically. Um, sheep don't suffer from it. It's a herpes virus. Um, and it can go from sheep to deer and is invariably fatal, um, but it will not go from deer to deer. So if there's a contact, especially we believe with lambing ewes, then um, there's a possibility that you may um, infect your deer with, with milling tar. So you need to take sensible precautions to avoid contact, especially at lambing time. Um, can I just say that... Um, from the genetics point of view, um, I mean, I suppose Alan's really touched on this, but we we started off many years ago in Scotland using um, farmed deer um, drawn entirely from the highlands and the wild deer there, um, and they did very well. But increasingly, people have tended to bring in um, genetics from English parks, and now, of course, also we're bringing in genetics from New Zealand. Um, it's ironic, really, that the deer in New Zealand um, came from Scotland, from the Highlands. Um, but uh, they had done an enormous amount of selection over the years because at a time when the Scottish deer industry, farm deer industry, was not really developing because subsidies um, were, were dis, um, discriminating against deer and favouring sheep and cattle, deer farming did not really develop. And all through those years in New Zealand, it was growing very, very fast. Alan um, spent many years in New Zealand and knows the industry there very well. We are now bringing genetics in from New Zealand in the form of um, frozen semen and possibly embryos too. So um, we can actually um, leapfrog off the back of the New Zealand deer industry in terms of genetic improvement. Um, you were also um, asking us about... Um, the difference in um, venison quality and quantity between farmed and wild deer, um, I think the differences are, are very considerable. When we're producing venison on a deer farm, we are doing it um, very carefully and specifically to produce venison. And so we're killing animals at a very precise age. Um, and I think Alan can talk more about that. But um, uh, that's very different from the wild deer, which are, of course, um, produced um, as um, the venison from the wild deer is, is really a byproduct of the management of wild deer populations. Um, and it tends to be from a variety of different ages. Um, the actual difficulties of stalking mean that the animals um, will be often chest shot and they will not um, be as easy to butcher. There will be a high level of wastage. There are also problems with, for example, warble flies um, causing some of the meat to be damaged. Um, it, it's very much more difficult to produce a very good um, carcass, which is what modern consumers, especially in the retail sector, are looking for from the wild. So that gives farm venison a bit of an edge, and we do have a much higher price for farm venison than the wild is, is getting. Um, I think that... Um, 
Uh, we have um, a lot to learn from New Zealand in the way we process the venison, um, but we are getting a lot better at it. Uh, farm deer, um, the hygiene um, is controlled by Food Standards Agency, um, administered by vets, um, and that's uh, the wild venison is under control of local authority through the um, game handling establishments, um, and the local authority is using environmental health officers for the venison um, inspection there. So there's, there's a very basic difference between the wild deer and the farm deer. We're very privileged um, in being able to kill farm deer on, on the farm. Um, no other livestock can we actually kill on the farm. Could I just jump in again? So in, in terms of live weight, um, a, live, a, a wild red hind would probably be maybe 70 at the very biggest 80 case live weight, um, whereas a farmed red deer would be certainly over 100, maybe up to 120. That's a hind weight. Um, in terms of stags, um, we're now seeing farmed red deer stags in getting up to nearly 300 kilos live weight. So there's a big difference. Um, most of that's due to nutrition, but a lot of it is also due to the genetics, as John touched on. So for those looking to go out and shoot wild deer, the, the incentive is really in the recreational activity of it or, or the conservation value of it as opposed to getting a, a carcass. I th could I come in here? I mean, I, I think recreational, if you like, and the sporting side remains very important. And certainly the income to the Highland estates from their deer stalking is very important. And a survey undertaken earlier this year, which looked at a worst case scenario, should there be no sporting lets whatsoever um, because of COVID, actually produced a figure of a £9 million loss to the rural economy and a lot of individual businesses suffering quite considerably. Um, coupled with the fact, of course, that sporting rates have been reintroduced and by some quirk um, of I'm not quite sure what, sporting rates for uh, upland stalking businesses um, were not um, given the rates holiday that a lot of other businesses were given earlier in the year because of COVID, which seems slightly extraordinary. Um, but I think the, the whole of the upland deer sector is slowly changing. There's a cultural change taking place. And venison, we've mentioned, has been a byproduct of, of if you like, the, the stalking experience. Venison is now increasingly becoming a product in itself or a byproduct of what we would call just simply deer management um, because that deer management has to take place and everyone in the sector is concerned that the venison that comes from that actually should go into the human food chain um, as a healthy protein. And we really wouldn't want to see it go to waste. So the value placed on venison coming off the hill is considerably higher. Certainly, there are certain places where it's being recognized that if you go out um, stalking your stags earlier in the season, and I mean, the season starts in July, then your venison will be of a much better quality than if you leave it into September. Um and again, a lot of the hind stalking which takes place is going on now through till February. Um, that, that will be done out of necessity rather than being done because there is a paying guest going along with the stalker. So less of a byproduct, I think, in terms of wild, um, but much more of a, if, if you like, an output from, from management. What is unfortunate, because everybody talks about Scottish venison and Scottish wild venison um, being, if you like, a, a prestige product, is that prices have dropped back from £2.30 per kilo, um, this is for wild, to around uh, about 98p to a pound. And that really is market pressure feeding back down the line from the processors, who I mean, really have to stay in business. There are very few of them taking taking wild venison in quantity. 
Um, and, you know, the, the external factors, again, COVID particularly this year, really are squeezing them very tight. And that pressure goes back down the line to the estates who are, who are maybe saying a pound per kilo where they were getting £2.30 a kilo. But we're keen to see, as I say, the sort of less of the byproduct and more of the the recognition that what is coming off the hill is actually uh, a very fine food product in itself. I um I was meaning to come back to you on that, Dick. So that, that that's that's really good. Um, in terms of the the venison market in Scotland, we said at the very beginning that the outlook was was positive in places. Um, but how how do we grow the the venison sector within Scotland, and how do we grow it sustainably in such a way that as to minimise conflict with uh, with the beef and sheep sectors, which we already know are, are struggling. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to think not just of Scotland, but the whole of the UK in terms of the market, because a major part of Scotland's venison market, whether that's for our farmed deer or from our wild deer, is actually London and the southeast of England. Um and closely behind that comes our domestic market up here, if you like, in Scotland. So if we want to go and talk to the market and to impress the market um, and encourage the market to eat venison, then again, from the research which was done last year, we know where those markets are and who we need to talk to. I think there's been a sort of man- magnetic pull down to London and the southeast, and we have to some extent, neglected what is a very healthy market on our doorstep. Um, and that is one area that we can certainly grow and expand. And as I say, that's happening now with various exercises taking place of encouraging um, local supply from the hill or from the farm direct to the consumer. Um, and we're looking at a number of different ways that that can happen. Whether on the wild side, for example, uh, it requires a separate processing unit um, to be um, to be operated, if you like, by the estate or by a collection of estates, or whether that processing can be contracted out and then the product comes back um, to that collective for for it to sell. So the the local market is one that we certainly can grow. Um, Again, I feel, I, mean, I feel I'm bang, banging on about wild here a bit, but we do have um, derogations in place um, through Europe, and I have no doubt that they will stay in place um, once we leave Europe, that allow for local venison to be sold locally, and by locally, that's within 50 kilometers of where it's killed or within the next neighboring local authority area. So that gives tremendous scope for local sales. Um, And additionally, that allows for small volumes. And if we think of small volumes, we're thinking in the hundreds. So there is tremendous opportunity for local sale. And there's also tremendous opportunity for mail order on top of that. And these are two areas which, which we're really looking at expanding at the moment. I mean, historically, the the market in the UK has grown because we've had the ability to be able to pull in um, imports from New Zealand and from Europe, um, and they have accounted for the market expanding to where it is today. Without those imports, uh, we would still probably be very much, a, a, if you like, a cottage industry. But again, news from New Zealand is that there exports to the UK have been declining, declining steadily over the last three or four years and have dropped from around about 800 tonnes a year coming directly into the UK to around about 500 tonnes a year now. Um, and that really is, and I'm sure Alan will add to this, but but one of the factors for that is that New Zealand has other markets elsewhere which are proving as or more lucrative than selling into the UK. So they're opening up in China and they've opened up the States very much for New Zealand product too. And the UK is slipping further down that list. So having pioneered, if you like, or been there in the pioneering stages of expanding the UK market, um, there's now a vacuum which is there for UK product to fill. 
and we need to take advantage of that. Yeah, I think adding to that, Dick, um, in terms of farmed venison, most of the farmed venison production in the UK is processed through Dovecote Park. And Dovecote Park um, supply two or three major retailers in, in the UK, the supermarket chains. Um, the kill this year is roughly 8,500 um, carcasses or animals. Uh, looking at a 55 kilo carcass for a 16 to 18 month stag. So um, they are seeing a, a increase in demand from the retailers, um, two of which have recently announced that going forward from this spring, they will not be taking on or taking in any more imports from New Zealand. So as, as Dick said, that, that creates a vacuum, which um, we hope to be able to fill, I would imagine. Uh, the Scottish production this year is round about 3,000 carcasses into that supply chain. Um, most of the farms we've set up over the past few years are not quite at full capacity. They're in expansion phase and some of them in the kind of early stages of production. So I think it's a sustainable um, growth we're looking at and I think the market's there to support that. And uh, Alan, can I, can I just ask, in terms of the transition from um, beef or sheep farms or, or, or even a dairy farm, I suppose, to venison, what is that like uh, for, for people interested in getting into the sector? Well, I think the, the people who we've been dealing with who are looking at this have, have done some homework. They haven't just come into this sort of blind and they've, they've either looked online and saw the information available or they've actually visited uh, deer farms and actually the, the deer farm demo project was very useful in that respect. So the biggest barrier probably for them is, is the capital costs um, in terms of the fencing and the handling systems and um, also breeding stock, which up until now um, has been in sort of short supply, if you like. Um, there is now breeding, more breeding stock available because of the farms we've set up already. And um, yeah, I mean, by and large, the farmers that have got into it have, have made a decision, a long-term decision to set up a deer unit. They may have had infrastructure that was needing replaced anyway. So there has had to be some capital spend there, um, regardless of a new enterprise. Um, and I think in terms of the the actual getting used to the animal and the process of working with the animal, I think we're there to help them. So that's that's been a great benefit. So the transition hasn't been, in my opinion, too, too difficult. Good, good. And um, when it comes to uh, to, to slaughter and, and, and shooting, um, I, I was wanting to ask, um, I, at what point do you uh, recognize that, that deer grazing becomes an issue on hills? Um, but I suppose the same question is also true for, for farm deer. Uh, at what point do you recognize that you're, you're at maximum capacity um, and you need to, to take action? In, in the wild, Alex, um, we're actually an awful lot better now uh, in terms of deer management planning. I mean, the 50 or so deer management groups really have got on top of this. Um, they have deer management plans looking ahead five years beyond that. And on the back of that, one of the essential tools is habitat impact assessment. And that is being rolled out steadily across the uplands and across the deer range. So uh, we have a lot more information in terms of wild deer and in terms of the impacts they're causing way beyond um, what in the past would have been foot counts and then latterly foot counts coupled with helicopter counts to assess population numbers. So really the, the whole of deer management has, has become a lot more scientific and a lot more science and evidence-based, if you like. And that really is a very valuable step forward. I mean, we've also seen considerable amounts of research being done, which have assisted um, and which have helped point in the right direction. So it's not the sort of hit and miss process that it once was, and it should, shouldn't be assumed to be that anymore. As I say, it's become much more technical, much more science-based, much more evidence-based on the uplands, and um, that's all for the good. And John, were you looking to come in on this topic? Um, yes, 
I, I would say that um, I, I tend to really focus mostly on on farm deer, um, and I, I think some of your listeners may not appreciate just exactly what a very big difference there is between um, farm farming deer and deer on the hills. Dick's talked a lot about the wild deer, which, um, by the way, are hugely more important in terms of volume. I think something like farm venison represents only about 2 or 3% of the venison production. So the, the wild deer are overwhelmingly the most important in terms of volume, um, although, of course, the price for farm deer is much greater. Um, I think um, that... The, we, we, I did mention briefly that um, farm deer are privileged that they can still be shot on the farm, which means that um, smaller farms could conceivably, as I have done for very many years before I um, retired from it, start a venison business based on killing your deer on the farm, processing them on the farm, um, having the meat inspected by um, food standards agency vets, with anti-mortem inspection, um, and then um, doing it through mail order. But that that is um, becoming increasingly a niche part of the farm venison sector. The overwhelming majority of farm deer are sent off to slaughter at um, Dovecote Park at the moment, and possibly other abattoirs to some extent as well. Um, they're abattoir killed, and they're processed exactly in the same way as beef and lamb. Um, the wild deer goes in an entirely different direction um, and it is a very different business. Um, and the, the price that we need to make farm deer sustainable um, has to be approaching um, £5 a kilo, which I think is what um, is the minimum price that's being paid at the moment for farm venison as against um, uh, the price for wild venison, which historically I suppose has been around about 2 or £3, is now down to a pound because of the COVID crisis, um, there's a very, very big difference. Um, and uh, yes, I think that's all I wanted to say about that. And um, we've talked a bit about uh, wild deer. We've talked a bit about farm deer um, this afternoon. I'd like to, to talk a bit about keeping them separate, if I can. Um, a lot of people will be familiar with deer fences. Um, how effective are deer fences in, in maintaining um, grazing integrity with, within the farm and at keeping out wild deer? And are there any alternatives that people should be aware of? Yeah, if I can come in there, we, we um, I mean, the standard deer fence, the perimeter fence that we tend to recommend is a, is a 1.9 single piece deer net. Um, the, there are alternatives to that. If you have an existing stock fence, which is in good condition, it can be topped up to about 1.9 or 2 metres. But uh, a fairly solid perimeter fence is more or less essential, I would say. Uh, within the, the farm system itself, if you've got pressure points and, and raceways, um, you might want to look at closer post spacings, uh, maybe a few more strainers, and as where deer are approaching the yards and... and um, into the handling system, then the deer has to be, the fence has to become more solid, more visible. Perhaps some boards on it, and perhaps some shade netting on it, just to lead the deer in. Um, deer raised in, in on a farm or in a farm situation will respect fences um, extremely well. Uh, they do also respect electric fencing. Um, there are some farmers now using forage crops as an alternative to uh, traditional winter housing and um, hard concentrate feeds. So you can break fence deer um, in the same way as you would cattle or sheep. Uh, the key thing is you have to train the deer to respect the electric fence. I mean, in my mind, an electric fence is a psychological rather than a physical barrier. So if you put up a, a bit of electric fence, maybe a short span across a corner within a, a solid fenced field so the deer can get used to it, once they've been in there for two or three days and they've all had a sniff and whatever, then the deer can be um, contained in a in a smaller area by an electric fence, and it works works extremely well. Um, I think there've been some trials in New Zealand with 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 the sort of remote type or invisible um, electronic fences, but I'm not quite sure that that technology's quite got to the UK. But I'm sure there will be people looking at that uh, in the future. 
I was going to mention there, um, we have had uh, Malcolm McDonald, a, a colleague of mine who works out of the SAC Inverness office, um, has been working with, uh, with a risk group um, investigating the potential for virtual fencing here in Scotland. Um, so, so we've already had a, a, a podcast on, on, on the topic. Um, it looks, it looks fairly, fairly promising. Um, it's just getting it to, to scale and cost for uptake to be effective. In terms of where the deer sector is, is, is going in Scotland, um, do either of you, uh, sorry, do any of you um, have any thoughts on where you want to see deer going post-Brexit, what kind of policy you would like to see, whether that's agricultural or environmental um, or, or even recreational? If if I could kick off here, I mean, we we are going forward now, have been since 2018, with a strategy for the deer sector in Scotland, um, covering both wild and farmed. So we're not, if you like, stumbling blindly in one direction. We know what we want to achieve. We know that we want to grow output from farms, from roundabout what, what Alan is saying, optimistically looks like about 150 tonnes a year now to 800 tonnes by 2030. So we know the direction of travel there. Um, A crucial part of that strategy is actually that we can't do any of this without support, whether that is support either through what the next single payment will look like. And I mean, Alan or John, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but in terms of deer farming, deer farming probably lends itself um, considerably to be able to incorporate greening measures as well. Um, and so I think there's there's considerable opportunity there. But if we look in the strategy, I mean, we, we have asked and embedded in there is a new entrant and expansion fund for deer farming. Um, the Scottish Government has, since its support for the Deer Farm and Park Demonstration Project back in 2015, actually really worked very hard with the deer sector on the wild and farm side to develop things and get things going. Um, and I mean, I, I can see that there will be, hopefully, more funding forthcoming uh, to enable us to, to move parts of the strategy forward crucially for um, capital costs such as fencing, uh, for handling, and possibly for stock also. So we're very much on the case in pushing for that, but I'm sure Alan and John also have some some thoughts to add. Um, I think one, one point that we could perhaps bring out is that, um, as, as Alan has said, in fact, that the costs of fencing are the biggest capital cost when you set up a deer farm. Um, so assistance from the government in that would be hugely helpful. Um, the fact that fencing is such a large part of the setup costs has also tended to dictate that most deer farms tend to be on good quality low ground where you get a higher stocking density. So your fencing costs per head contained are obviously less. Um, I think there's a bit of a misconception that deer really like to live on the hills they only live up there because people shoot them when they come down. And um, in point of fact, they're really not terribly well insulated. Um, they survive successfully on the hills because they're very adept at sensing changes in weather and moving into shelter. So um, I, I do. I personally tend to see deer as um, farm deer as, as a low ground um, uh, enterprise um, rather than, uh, than an upland one. Um, just one other quick point, if I may, about the wild deer, the stalking of wild deer. It, it, it is, as I've said, hugely politicised now. Um, and it does seem to me that there is a, a, a very large number of people, predominantly urban, who don't like the idea of people enjoying killing things, perhaps understandably. But if you look at the need to control wild deer, which nobody's going to deny then it seems to me much better that people who actually enjoy that and take pride in doing it carefully and well, um, they should be encouraged. And a lot of the problems of population of wild deer in uh, many parts of the world reflect the fact that hunting has become 
less popular in some areas. And I, I think we should stop um, trying to hide hunting or stalking under a under a bushel, and and um, we should be proud of it. it it's um, it's a very demanding, very challenging thing to go out in the hill to stalk deer, um, and people should enjoy it. And if they do enjoy it, they'll do a much better job. End of rant. Well, in terms of um, the farm deer sector, I mean, we we're producing a, a meat that. Um, well, venison is is one of the very few red meats, if not the only red meat, that's actually undergoing an expansion or an increase in consumption in the UK. And venison, for farm venison, um, has a, a great future as far as I can see. We we do, are not reliant at all in any way in on the export market, um, unlike the sheep sector, which will come under extreme pressure post-Brexit, I would imagine. Um, but yes, we, as John and Dick have said, um, even parity with some of the other livestock enterprises in terms of support. Um, for instance, the recent um, farm productivity grant scheme came out and there was no mention of deer farming whatsoever in there. Um, we, we had clients trying to obtain information about deer crushes and, and really the, the feedback coming back from the department was what is a deer crush? So there's an education process that has to be done there. Um, but yeah, I mean, we do need a bit of support, um, and I think we can move the deer sector forward in Scotland, the farm deer sector, really quite well. Fantastic. And now, in in the process of speaking to, to the three of you um, this, this afternoon, it has occurred to me there are a couple of questions that that um, I'd like to throw out to you and, and see what, uh, what, what kind of response I get. Um, I suppose I'll, I'll just I'll start with with Richard, then we'll, we'll go to John and then Alan. But uh, thoughts on on the potential of uh, of rewilding um, in in Scotland and in Britain? There, there has been a bit of talk about the reintroduction of lynx. Obviously, some people would like to see wolves uh, reintroduced. Is that an immediate concern for for you guys uh, being from the Venison Advisory Service? I would I would think in terms of both wolves and lynx in from a farming perspective, um, both of those really do not stack up whatsoever. I think we have to be we we have to be circumspect to understanding what we need from our countryside and what we need from our environment. And really, if I can stick my neck out, stop trying to hark back to where we were a thousand years ago. Um, everything has moved on considerably. I have been involved in some of the discussions on um, links being brought back and wolves as well, and the impact that they would make on the deer population, frankly, um, would not be anything in our lifetime, nor the lifetime of our children or their children either. Um, I, we, rewilding is an attractive concept in certain areas, and I wouldn't argue that there isn't a place for it, but we have to rely on our countryside to produce the food we eat and the food that others will eat if we can get it to them. I mean, there, there is, you know, this, this food shortage that we're facing up to and population growth. And I don't think that balances with saying that we need to turn all of our uplands into a, or, and, you know, other areas too, into a wilderness and just allow people to tramp there to do what they will. I mean, that is, that to me just doesn't stack up at all. Yes, I, I think I would agree. Yeah, I, I would agree with Dick. Um, I think one of the basic precepts of biology that I was taught is that uh, predators don't really control prey numbers so much as prey numbers controlling predators. And I think um, it's unlikely that uh, putting wolves out certainly would have a dramatic effect on red deer populations. Um, lynx would be probably more effective in killing roe deer. Um, you wouldn't need very many lynx in, in Scotland probably to make an impact on roe deer population. They would also obviously kill sheep and cattle um, in the case of wolves. Um, 
it, it's a very big question, and I think we're a very long way away from getting there. And as Dick says, I think we have a duty to produce food at the moment um, until perhaps some high-tech solution comes along in a few generations' time, which will allow us to produce food from, um, could be insects or something, um, that, that will take the pressure off the grazing systems. But I, I, I'm not um, a huge advocate of lynx and wolves here. Um, I've been involved in, in rewilding projects in Netherlands and in the south of England. Um, and it's very different environment there. And it depends on fencing. And you have huge um, conflicts with urban populations. In the case of the Netherlands, um, populations of deer um, and cattle contained on the Oostvaardersplassen caused a huge urban outcry when they started dying of starvation, and yet those enclosures are not big enough to put in wolves or anything that would actually make a significant difference. It, it, it has huge technical problems, and I think we're a very long way away from it at the moment. Yeah, I really don't have much to add to that other than to agree with Dick and John. And um, In my experience, I, I was out in Bulgaria a few years ago doing some work with um, a European rewilding group, uh, and again, it was it was about re relocating prey um, into areas where deer, particularly fallow deer, had been almost wiped out and led to a decline in wolf kill, which had then led to a decline in vulture numbers. Um, there it was all about vultures, and, and their landscape had changed very, very quickly um, due to depopulation because of social migration and um, the fall of communism. So, yeah. I don't have much to say on it, to be perfectly honest. No, no problem. Um, the other thing that occurred to me while I was listening to to you guys, um, what is the what what is the process by which we make use of deer antlers? Um, is there a process for that in in this country? Yeah, there's all there's always been a sort of craft industry. Um, Scotland's renowned for its antler whistles, its antler um, thumbsticks, and um, antlers at the moment, or over the past few years, have been extremely trendy. So it hasn't been too difficult to sell antlers on eBay and whatnot. Um, also, there's been a sort of wholesale export trade to um, the the Asian market in terms of. Uh, uh, antlers been used in ground antler been used in Asian medicine, which it has been in for the past millennia. Um, I'm not quite sure what the state of that is at the moment, but uh, there's been difficulty with exports, I think. And um, there's also been a great uh, move towards antler dog chews. Um, so yeah, I mean, most cast antler and farm deer antler has historically found a home. And John, were you looking to come in on that? Well, I, I would think that um, the stags um, on a breeding deer farm pay for their winter feed with their antler drop. Um, it's always had a pretty good price, really. Um, I think farm deer antler may be slightly less um, valuable than, than wild antler because it's um, usually um, we tend to cut the antlers off the animals before the rut to avoid injury to fences, to other deer and to humans. Um, we cut the antlers off as soon as the velvet's gone, so it's um, completely painless for the animal. Um, but when you saw it off, then it loses some of its value. I think listeners need to understand that what we're doing is entirely different to what um, happens in other parts of the world, where the growing antler antlers some people may not even realize that antlers fall off every year and regrow the regrowing antler which we describe all as being in velvet when it's growing because it's covered in fur um it's live and sensible sensitive um and it's um it's amputated um by deer farmers in most parts of the world in asia um and in new zealand but not in europe um, it's actually illegal to cut the growing antler off stags um, in Britain. Um, and what we do when we cut the hard antler off is, is quite legal and um, very different from cutting off the velvet antler. The velvet antler, the soft antler, the growing antler, once it's cut off is um, usually frozen and then dried 
and sold into the traditional Chinese medicine trade. And that it's a significant byproduct in New Zealand deer farming. They, the, the deer farms that cut velvet antler in New Zealand um, do it on farms generally which are not producing venison. So it's, um, the, it, it, there are two, um, two enterprises there, velvet antler production and venison production. Perfect. No, that's good. Um, I am. I'm, I'm conscious that, uh, that that I've had you guys speaking for for quite a while now. Um, so I think I'll, I'll wind down the podcast with uh, with one final question. Uh, I ask this of all the speakers who who come in and uh, and sit down and have a chat with us. In terms of what's going on within the deer sector in Scotland um, and and across the world right now, is there something that that listeners in Scotland should be paying more attention to something that you feel that you want to, to spotlight while you're on the podcast? Yeah, from my perspective, I think uh, we need to look at um, our carbon footprint and also our production costs. I mean, uh, there has been a squeeze on, on venison prices, more so in the wild sector than there has been in the farm sector. But um, we need to look at our production costs and how we actually can make it make those more efficient um, and that in turn will increase our profit margin. My feeling looking ahead for deer farmers is that um, we're in a very strong position in, as I said earlier on, that deer are very, very healthy animals um, and the use of drugs in deer, I think we should be able to cut that back even further. Um, We already use massively less antibiotics than the cattle and sheep industries let alone the pig and poultry industries. Um, And I think we could probably go even further. We use antelmintics, wormers, at the moment. Um, I think we may reach a point where we can actually, with good management and use of forage crops, um, actually eliminate the need even for those. So we've got a way to go, but I think there's a possibility to reach a situation where deer farmers use virtually no drugs at all. And for me, I guess what I would like to say is that at the time we're recording this podcast, in fact, in two days time, British Game Week kicks off and there will be a week long celebration through the UK of eating venison and other game products. Um, and I, I really have to say that we, we are all involved in this because venison is a food, venison is a healthy protein. Um, and one where both the product that comes from the hill and the product that comes from the farm have a place side by side. Um, They can be marketed separately, together. Uh, We have real opportunity with both. We have a tremendous story in terms of provenance, venison coming from the hill, Um, of how it's stalked, of how it goes to market. We have a tremendous story too on the farm side um, of really how we have taken this this wild animal and and have moved it into one where, yes, it will sit alongside beef and lamb. Um, And we hope as it does that on the farm, likewise, it will gain more space, should I dare say it, on the supermarket shelf. It is a product that we've been designed to eat. Uh, it's becoming increasingly available, so let's eat more of it. Brilliant. Um, and uh, on that note, um, gentlemen, uh, Dick, John, Alan, um, let me just thank you on behalf of the Farm Advisory Service for, uh, for joining us this afternoon. Um, it's been, been really good. I, I know I've certainly learned an awful lot. Um, and uh, no, I, I, I wish you all the best, and, and thanks very much for your time. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you.